Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Nation podcast, a show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Interview 4, Jonathan Turner, Part 1. In this first of three parts, we talk about Jonathan's programming background, how he ended up working on Rust, and the ways he has helped start pushing the language toward even better and better usability. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. So I thought we would start off, as I usually do with these, of just getting some idea of how in the world you ended up, first of all, as a software developer, and then after that, how you ended up working on well, the Rust language server. And and today, unlike in the episode I put out last time, I'm going to say server instead of saying service every single time. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to say it, but yeah. <laughs> every time, man. So how did you end up in software? So, wow, that is a long and storied history. <laughs> that, might, uh, that might take a little too long to go through. Uh, it does start with me getting a TI-99-4A when I was six years old. Nice. Um, and a Commodore 64 pretty soon after that. And just getting the magazines and typing the uh, the code from the magazines in. So the astute readers probably have already <laughs> figured out how old I am just from that story. For people roughly in your age range, that's a story I have heard very often. It seems like that was the way in for a lot of people in your generation. And it's it's interesting because I think um, people forget that Commodore had this really cool split screen thing where you could split the screen and the top of the screen would be graphics and the bottom would be text. Huh. And so it is one of probably one of the first interactive um, developing kind of things, I had which no is going to play into the conversation <laughs> later. So. Yeah, I had no idea. I've, I've never actually seen, much less used, a Commodore. It's just one of those things in the deep recesses of history for <laughs> me. Oh, yeah. That's good times. Um, but yeah, I guess I just kind of was on Commodores for a while, and then PC, um, went to undergrad in computer science, and you know, right at the, the turn of the .NET, uh, .com boom, mm. Thinking, oh yeah, I'm gonna totally jump on this and make millions of dollars and be a bazillionaire. Yeah, that's right. As you can see, that didn't quite happen. <laughs> the dot com boom but turned into the dot com crash, and there was much sorrow. Yeah, but uh, I ended up working, did all kinds of stuff. Um, worked as an audio engineer, hmm. doing audio software for a while. Worked in telephony, reading websites into the telephone for you and letting you navigate on the telephone. Wow. Yeah, it's, I, I kind of did went through a series of these kinds of things, and around 2006 or so, really started getting into uh, programming languages and started creating my own and doing it for fun. And then by 2010, decided to go to grad school, study programming languages and compilers. Yeah, and then I guess from there, I worked, I worked at Cray Supercomputer, hmm. uh, working on one of their languages called Chapel which is very cool, but no one knows about this thing. Uh, it's a, kind of a systems language for doing like highly paralyzed, highly distributed computation. Uh, but it's, you know, again, not really promoted. <laughs> and so I think not a lot of people know about it. Huh. I sometimes wonder how many really great languages are just out there that no one's ever heard of them because there was never someone to publish a book about how awesome it was because they went to a little Ruby conference in 2000 or whatever it was. And so it's just sitting there trucking along. Yeah. 
I think that's that's sadly true. <laughs> and there's probably some really gem ideas yeah. in those, you know, languages that no one knows about. Uh, so in, let's see, that was 2010, 2011, went to Apple as an intern and worked on LLVM hmm. and, and Clang and a little bit of what would become Swift later on. And uh, in 2012, started with Microsoft. So okay. I was on the TypeScript team as the program manager there for a few years. Um, that was, I mean, talking about, uh, you know, taking a language and, you know, it's so easy to fall into obscurity. Oh, yeah. Right. Like learning the techniques to actually build a language up and build a community around it mm-hmm. is something that, you know, Microsoft has been doing for mm-hmm. decades. And, and they're, they're, I'd say I learned so much at Microsoft, I, I can't even, I wouldn't even be able to enumerate it. There's just so much good information there. Yeah, I have, one, I should just say thank you for working on TypeScript because I write <laughs> TypeScript every day and I'm not a JavaScript hater. I I think JavaScript is an interesting language that for all its words, you can make into basically anything you want, which is quite impressive for something I hacked together in 10 days 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. but I spent a lot of time doing type-driven development today because I could because of TypeScript. So thanks for working on that. It's a great piece of software engineering and it's a great language and it's been a lot of fun to spool it up in our apps. So Yeah, I was just going to say it was a great team. I mean, definitely a team effort to to get the original vision. So I kind of joined on Microsoft right before TypeScript was 1.0, it was like 0.7 or something and had three internal users. <laughs> uh, so that tells you, you know. Here we are today. That's right. So the, the full arc of kind of seeing that come around and now it's like in the top 10 or top 15, it, it's pretty high up there in terms of, of um, popularity of the language now. That was really cool to be a part of and really cool to watch. Um, even even today, I still love to watch it, watch it grow. Yeah, it has been fun. And especially a lot of the work done in the 2.x series has kind of blown my mind. I saw somebody hack together a very, very primitive, but kind of dependently typed thing around it. And I was like, <laughs> What? <laughs> Hacking together the fact that arrays have lengths and that you can specify keys in terms of those things. I was like, you just specified that this is an array of a given length in TypeScript. That's what? That's awesome. <laughs> that was uh, that was Yehuda Katz, who is also a Rust core team member. And one of these days I'm going to have to have him on the show. He does ridiculous things sometimes. Oh, just, you should. You should. <laughs> I, I love Yehuda. He's great. Yeah, we, we actually go back uh, a few years. He was on the uh, JavaScript language committee, mm-hmm. the ECMAScript committee, and I sat on that as part of the TypeScript work mm-hmm. as well. And we kind of hit it off and have been friends for a few years at this point. So is he he the one that suckered you into all the Rust work, or how did you? Uh, you know, <laughs> how did you, you end know, up in Rust land? <laughs> that's very astute of you to to I. I want to say that that is probably true. Now, I had seen Rust a few years before it hit 1.0, mm. back when it was, let's just say, so many sigils, like my <laughs> eyes were hurting. Sorry to the old Rust people that that you know, that, that grimace when I say that. I think I was when I was looking to Rust, I was getting a hint of the promise there, mm-hmm. but you know, it just was. It didn't feel very natural. I didn't pick it up and go, ah, oh, yeah, this is good stuff, and. 
it took a few tries to kind of sit down and really sit with it long enough to really, to really, you know, sink my teeth into it. Mm -hmm. And I think it was probably Yehuda uh, after I left. So I was at Microsoft for three and a half years or so. After I left, I kind of just took some time off. I had been doing programming languages for a while. I was like, I don't know about another programming <laughs> language. So I'm just going to take a long vacation and see what happens. And as I tend to do after about a few weeks of sitting around, I really started getting antsy <laughs> and wanting to work on the next thing. I'm just wired. I have to, I'm like a workhorse. So in playing with, um, you know, looking at Rust, seeing the, the kind of the 1.0 Rust, mm -hmm. it's not Sigil City anymore. It's it's actually a, a well thought thing, and there's cargo. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a system behind it that that felt very comfortable for me. You know, npm I had been using that. Yep. Uh, Here's the systems language that actually feels not exactly like a systems language. <laughs> it looks like they're trying to be a, a little bit more than that. Yeah, and of course Yehuda, being a fan of it, was. You know, he was there, and I would try out a little example. I'm like, why doesn't this work? And I would, you know, <laughs> throw the keyboard and send him a message. And he would kind of patiently talk me through a couple examples. And I, okay, fine, fine. And then I'd get, you know, uh -huh. two hours later, send the same exact <laughs> thing for the next set of questions. So he was basically my stack overflow for the first few days. Um, but that actually, you know, we'll probably talk about this later. Uh, but the this idea of like your first week, as a Rust developer, eh, it can be a little rough. Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, it can be a little rough, and especially right then. Yeah, there was the 1.0 book, which is a good book. Mm -hmm. I mean, Steve did really good, and there was the error messages, which were decent. But the experience of trying to learn it, I, I found pretty, pretty daunting. Yeah. But once I got over that hump, I kind of, whenever I'm learning a language, at least nowadays. I poured a Nintendo emulator to it, <laughs> so I can, you know, it's something fun that actually you can, yeah, you can kind of play with and 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 see something working, and you're like, aha, okay, it's a real <laughs> language. I can play my Nintendo games on it. But uh, yeah, I started working with that. I ported a Nintendo emulator over to Rust, stood it up, and you know, had it working. I don't know, like a week of on and off hacking or something, and stood it up, and it was unplayably fast in my first try <laughs> and i was like wow that's really this interesting different yeah this is very different you know i and after i sat down and kind of looked at what happened so you know i had structured it in in a particular way but then when i moved it to rust i started getting all these ownership errors mm -hmm. so i'm like okay fine i'm just i'll put that on the stack and that on the stack and i'm not going to worry about this i'll just you know kind of structured in such a way that I don't get those errors. And then when I'm looking at it, I'm like, wait a second, I'm doing all this stuff with good data locality just because that's the Rust way. And uh, that was when I think the first light bulb really went on. Like, wait a second, they're actually, they're actually kind of nudging you in the direction of writing good, solid code, mm -hmm. you know, let alone actually the, when we get into parallelism and all that kind of stuff. But just, just kind of your first few weeks of it, you're already writing better code than you were a few weeks prior. I mean, that's a big yeah. deal. Yeah, that was my experience too, coming in, having written a, a lot of C and a, done a lot of maintenance on an admittedly awful and archaic C++ code base and trying and trying to push it towards something better and not even knowing exactly what I was trying to push it toward. And I started writing Rust and it was just 
Oh, this is what I've been trying to. Oh, there's a name for that idea. Oh, this is why that bug kept happening no matter how many times I tried to smash it. And now I not only don't write that bug because it's well designed to point me away from it, but if I try, the compiler says, no, you may not. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So as I, you know, I, I played with this emulator and I started getting really uh, ambitious, there's a project that my cousin and I, uh, who, who actually, he's the co-host of the CPP cast, which okay. is the C++ mm-hmm. uh, podcast, Jason Turner. So he and I, uh, years ago, wrote an embedded scripting language that works with C++. So you can just call out scripts, and then you register stuff on the C++ side, and it kind of works with a huge range of C++ features. Hmm. And I said, you know, it'd be really awesome. Let's make a Rust version of that. <laughs> so one of my little hacks was an embedded scripting language for Rust. And as I got deeper and deeper, I said, this is, you know, I'm going to go reach out to these guys at the Rust team. If they have an opening, you know, let's let's see if I can get over there. Because I feel like I have all this training from Microsoft and how, you know, let's make languages successful. Yeah. And here's this team that is, like, really pushing really hard to make a language that's successful. And it should be successful. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool project. So, yeah, I reached out to them and, you know, a few months later, I joined the team. Awesome. So you mentioned, obviously, TypeScript and with a degree in programming languages. I'm always curious to hear from people sort of what your background was in terms of languages before Rust. And yours, no doubt, is far more diverse than than most folks because you have that degree and that background. But what was Commodore 64... <laughs> <laughs> So somewhere between uh, there yeah. and TypeScript, I imagine yeah. you did a few other yeah. things. I, I did one or two other languages in the middle there. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, learning basic was my first one. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, 10 space print, you know, <laughs> like the, the, where you still had to line, you know, each yep. line number, you have to type yourself kind of thing. And I did that, you know, for years as I was learning how to really start to write code. Uh, learned Pascal in, in high school. I was in love with this game series called Ultima, mm-hmm. like a video game series. And it's a, it's a very, you know, predecessor to the open world video games that we have today. But it, it was such a, a glorious world that they kind of developed. And I was so in love with it. And I wanted to make my own version of that. So I was learning, you know, Turbo Pascal and, and trying to make my own version of, of Ultima. And so getting into college, of course, I actually learned C and C++. When I get to, uh, you know, I go through some of the, I don't even know. I can't even remember what some of these things are called, but some <laughs> of the, the web languages before yeah. we really settled on JavaScript being the, the, the main one. But there is like half a dozen, and I probably went through most of those. Uh, so yeah, learning C and C++ as an undergrad, and then when I get to grad school, functional programming is the thing everyone is talking mm-hmm. about. So I'm trying to learn OCaml and Haskell. and Yeah, I probably ta- touched the range, but yeah. more broad than I would say necessarily really deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, having a cousin who's a C++ expert was really helpful because then <laughs> I could learn really good C++, and I, I did that professionally for a few years also. So you came over to Rust, and when did you actually come on? It's been a year-ish, year and a half? 
somewhere in there? Yeah, a year, a year and a month, something. So March of 2016. Okay, so just just before the one year anniversary of 1.0. That's right. So that seems like a great time to transition and start talking a bit about what you've been doing as you've been working on Rust since then. Sure. So when I so when I came on. The idea was that they needed some hands on the compiler itself. Mm. They wanted some more people on the team working on it full time. And I hadn't really done any deep kernel hacking, any uh, compiler hacking for years. So I had been doing TypeScript, but as the program manager. Mm. So I was kind of overseeing the project and the direction and working with partners and that kind of thing. Gotcha. And so... My technical chops were a little rusty, you know, again, no pun intended. <laughs> it's almost impossible not to make rust. Puns. It's impossible to avoid that one, for sure. <laughs> so I did um, some early, early hacks on the compiler were just trying to change error messages and stuff. And I was talking to Nico. He's like, oh, I have this cool idea for how we can make prettier error messages. And... You know, to me, it's like, oh, cool. You know, let's talk about usability. Let's yes. talk about how, how we can make, you know, Rust as a as a project that much more appealing. Mm-hmm. You know, don't change its fundamental. Right. Don't change. You know, it's a really good tool for doing its job. Just make it really comfortable to use. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we are looking into the error messages, and I start playing with the design that he he kind of had this idea on. And after a week, we looked at it and said, we have absolutely got to implement this. This looks really cool, um, especially when you, you know, nowadays it's kind of normal. You get a, a borrow check error and you see what, what the design was. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was like, wow, what? I've yeah. never seen a compiler that does that. Yeah. So The only thing I had ever seen that was comparable, which is in just such a different category that the kinds of errors you're dealing with are wildly different. But Elm has the mm-hmm. same kind of you're just like a compiler can be like this <laughs> what this is amazing yeah. no that project yeah some of the insights they had earlier on we were looking at that from day one when we were coming up with what rust version should be mm-hmm. and in fact i still hope that we have like an elm like training mode where you can kind of say give me the extended information and it actually teaches you why this error is happening. Uh, I think that would be a huge yeah. benefit to people learning Rust. I just haven't had time to get back to it <laughs> and implement it. But uh, yeah, Elm was, a, Elm was definitely a huge, uh, huge influence. I think that when, when you, we started playing with the error messages and we actually started implementing them and getting them out into the public, a couple of things happened in fairly quick succession after that. First, people started getting excited about you know how much usability can can go into the product. Mm-hmm. When you talk about usability, it's hard to kind of imagine what can be changed, and then you don't really want to change anything because maybe you're risking losing some of the goodness. Right. Uh, and so it was kind of a, a good example of oh wait, you don't have to. Again, you don't have to lose any of the right. what makes Rust cool. You can just make it nicer to use. Right. The other thing that I kind of learned, and I hadn't really done this before, is that you can work with the, the Rust community and get a huge benefit out of mm-hmm. it, right? So I port over, I don't know, a couple dozen errors, but there are hundreds of errors in the compiler and it takes a long time and it's tedious yeah. to get through each one. And so I was talking with Aaron and some of the other folks 
And they suggested, why don't you just make one bug that lists all the errors that people need to change and then teach them how to change it and then they can go do it themselves. And I was like, yeah, okay, maybe six people will join on and <laughs> it'll be nice, but I don't know if it'll be useful. I mean, I mean it'll be helpful. Well, we appreciate the help, yeah. you know, but turns out like 80 people signed wow. on and got like, oh my goodness. I knew there was input yeah. on that, but I had no idea it was that many people. That's awesome. It was, it was a ton of people. And, and when I realized like how cool the Rust community was in terms of like their willingness to jump on and if you give them enough information for how to do the work, they're totally willing to do mm -hmm. it and help you out. Um, that, was, that was really cool. That was a really cool experience for me too. Yeah, I have enjoyed that immensely. And that's a wrap on the first part of this three-part interview. There's a lot more where it came from, like this bit from the next episode. For the people that did not use Rust, one of what are the reasons you do not use Rust? And a quarter of them says, a quarter of them said, I do not use Rust because there is no IDE support. And you know, for a systems language and a bunch of people that use VI and Emacs, that might feel a little weird. But my spidey sense for Microsoft was tingling at that thing. Well, yeah, where do you, <laughs> where do you think Visual Studio gets all its users? Thanks to Anthony Deschamps, Christopher Gifford, Chris Palmer, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, Matt Rutter, Ben Whitley, Peter Tillemans, Philip Keller, Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kailavirta for sponsoring the show this month. If you are interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash or you can give a one-off contribution at any of a number of other services listed on the show website. And if you're a company interested in advertising to developers, get in touch. As always, you can find show notes and links for this episode and previous episodes, along with code samples and more, at newruststation.com. You can follow the show on Twitter, at newruststation. You can follow me there, at Chris Kreitschow. And you can follow Jonathan there, at JNTRNR. If you enjoy the show, please tell somebody about it. You can also help others discover the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or in another podcast directory, or by sharing it around on whatever social media you use. I'd love to hear your feedback, as well as suggestions for topics, further interviewees, and so on. Please do reach out to me on Twitter, or in the threads for the episode on the Rust User Forum, or Hacker News, or Reddit, or just send me an email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding.